This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brown. Today, we take a broad definition of education and explore the process of released prisoners reintegrating into American society. My guest is Calvin John Smiley, an assistant professor at Hunter College, City University of New York. The majority of my research is around prisoner reentry, so I spent three years working at a community-based reentry organization in Newark, New Jersey. Calvin is currently co-editing a book with Keisha Middlemass entitled Prisoner Reentry in the 21st Century, Critical Perspectives of Returning Home, which will be published by Routledge. In our conversation, Calvin puts prisoner reentry in a historical context and argues that the American prison system should not simply be reformed, but must be abolished altogether. I am a prison abolitionist. I believe wholeheartedly that the U.S., or that prisons in general, but uh, U.S. prison in particular, has not done what they claim it's supposed to do. Calvin John Smiley, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you uh, thinking about me and my work for this, Will. You have recently told me about this new edited collection that you're putting together about prisoner reentry in the United States. And I want to talk about that, but before getting into it, I thought it would be good to just kind of think about, well, what is the prison population even look like today in America, and what is then prisoner reentry? So can you give us a little context about prisons today? Like, how many people are actually in prison in America? Yeah. um, So the United States has one of the largest prison populations in the world, um, one of the largest per capita. I think recently um, the African nation of the Seychelles has taken over as the number one um, country of prisoners per capita, and that's just because of its small population. I think I read something that they have like 17 people incarcerated. So anyway, when we think about it, the United States is the largest prison uh, system per capita. Um, at, its, at its zenith, the U.S. had somewhere around 2.4 million people, and that was around 2008. Uh, since that time, the numbers have dropped down a bit. Um, some, some claims between 2.2 uh, million and 2.3 million. Uh, what's really interesting is that some uh, academics and other research have said that the numbers actually haven't fallen, but the way in which the justice system records their numbers have changed a bit. So, for instance, being in a detention center as opposed to a prison, right? So, you know, if you're in a detention center before deportation, you're not necessarily counted in that jail and prison population. Um, So uh, we have uh, a lot of people incarcerated. Um, That era as many have said, started roughly in the um, late 60s, early 1970s, basically under President uh, Nixon, who had you know, called for the war on drugs and his tough-on-crime and kind of no-nonsense uh, legislation, which was really a response to the civil rights movement um, and urban unrest, um, but all, again, coded language for let's uh, attack you know, liberals, leftists and minority folks, particularly African-Americans. So we see that that really uh, manifested into a lot of legislation, both at the state and federal level, Um, things such as mandatory minimum sentences, meaning that judges, it basically mandatory minimum sentences took away um, judges' right 
to um, use their own discretion, meaning that if you were caught with a certain amount of uh, cocaine on you or, or, or whatever drug substance, the judge had to sentence you based on the um, uh, minimum guidelines. So if that called for 20 years, regardless of your past criminal conviction, your job, your family, your whatever, you had to do or you were sentenced to 20 years. There were also other things such as truth in sentencing guidelines, which meant that um, certain folks had to serve a certain percentage of a particular sentence. So um, in many states, it was 85%, meaning that if you were given a 10-year sentence, you had to serve at least eight and a half years before eligibility for parole. Um, and also during that time, uh, it wasn't just Nixon, but we saw other presidents like Reagan, Bush, and Clinton also you know, get on the bandwagon with this idea of tough on crime and passing a whole bunch of uh, legislation that really ramped up you know local law enforcement as well as state and um, federal law enforcement to you know go after people to rid the communities of criminal or criminal behavior do you think under the trump administration you'll see a rise again in in the prison population since trump seems to be big on the the you know war on drugs and the the law and order sort of campaigning yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, it's it's going to be interesting. I've been trying to follow as closely as I can because not only just Trump, but, you know, our attorney general, Jeff Sessions, right, he is in a minority of uh, politicians who actually believes that the war on drugs was working, right? I mean, when we think about the war on drugs today, there are people both on the Democratic and Republican side who have acknowledged that this war is not a winnable war. It is something that has not... Uh, brought any type of uh, diminishing in drug use uh, across the country uh, and that people use drugs and uh, you know we should really rethink our orientation towards what uh, substance use uh, legislation looks like and you have states right now who are even legalizing certain substances like marijuana which is uh, bringing revenue for those states in terms of taxes. Um, what's interesting uh, what's happening now is that numbers are still falling in terms of our prison system, right? But it's too early to tell if this is a Trump thing, right? You know, as the numbers are coming out, the numbers that are being reported are basically numbers that are being calculated still under the Obama administration. What we can say is that we see that the private prison industry and other industries that have, uh, that are tethered to, uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, criminal justice system have shot up in their stock, right? You know, um, a lot of people are basically betting that the prisons will go back up. Uh, so, in short, uh, we could see a potential rise in uh, in the U.S. prison system under a Trump administration. And uh, barring any changes in how they classify prison, right? Like you said earlier, prison or detention. I mean, that's quite an interesting phenomenon. It depends how you how you classify what it means to be incarcerated. Sure, sure. And then you also see things like um, Chicago had these. There was a big expose um, not too long ago, but um, lawyers were calling up 
the local precincts looking for their client and the local precincts were oh, we don't know where they are and they were saying well they're in your custody and it basically exposed that um, Chicago had these kind of black site jails where they were holding people and not telling their family their lawyers um, so you know if we also fold those into the mix and you know uh, I'm sure Chicago is not the anomaly here but I'm sure that there are many cities in places around the country as the United States has had black sites around the world, right, of these kind of detention centers and prisons. Um, and Donald Trump has um, expressed his willingness to bring these black sites back in terms of interrogation and, and, and uh, you know, the war on terror. It does seem like the, the war on terror that America has been, been supposedly fighting since 2003 it seems like a lot of it is actually returning home, like you said, is, is returning back into the U.S. where there are, you know, I think there's so many pictures of these protests lately where police in basically military gear walking down the streets of America. Um, and then what you just said about these black sites, prison black sites in Chicago, which is something that seems to be uh, a legacy of this war on terror. So, I mean, it really does seem like there is somehow this legacy of the war is actually now coming back home into into America. Sure. I mean, you know, when we look, you know, at the United States, we have this real fondness to use the word war, whether it's war on terror, war on drugs, war on crime, war on gangs, war on poverty, right? So we're this, this constant need to have an adversary. Um, but what's really interesting about the idea of the war on terror is, you know, it's an abstract. Um, the war on drugs, while not necessarily an abstract, it definitely has certain implications of the war on which drugs, right? So we've now seen that, you know, for the past 40 years, the war on crack cocaine, the war on heroin uh, meant criminal uh, sanctions, meaning that if you were caught with a bundle of heroin, right, a couple, uh, you know, ounces of heroin, you were going to jail. And that uh, was mainly uh, being... Uh, thrown at uh, African Americans and other minorities living in urban centers. But now what we're seeing is this incredible shift in policy uh, uh, in terms of how we're treating heroin users. And, you know, now it's no longer being seen as a criminal justice issue, but seen as a um, public health issue. But what has also changed is the hue right, of the person that is being seen as the user, right? So in the 1980s, when the user was seen as this kind of Willie Horton, you know, this kind of menacing black man uh, image, you know, it was lock him up, throw away the key. But now that it's, you know, Becky from the suburbs, uh, you know, the United States is now trying to articulate that we need to uh, help these people. And, you know, the outgoing governor of New Jersey, Governor uh, Chris Christie, had this whole campaign uh, to combat uh, opioids. And we've now also seen that, you know, uh, the U.S. government knew that pharmacies were pumping out opiates and doctors were prescribing these pills um, when people probably didn't need them, knew that they were highly addictive. And, you know, the result is that we now have an opiate epidemic across the country. Uh, and it's not just in the urban centers, but it's across America, hitting suburbs, hitting college educated, middle class white folks. And, um, you know, this is something that, you know, we now need to deal with. But the language isn't war on opioids. No, no, it's it's uh, it's save our children and save our families, and you know, and, and the language has changed. Um, and it's it's interesting. Um, 
how that change is really manifested in coded language around race, right, in class. It seems like a lot of this is, you know, it is, it is legacies of slavery that America just has never been able to deal with. And they just keep changing these terms to, to talk about these new phenomena. Sure. And uh, some have even, uh, have even reported that, you know, while the United States is in some ways um, lowering, uh, say, or decriminalizing or, or making marijuana legal, there's a trade-off. Because what we're also seeing is in other crimes, um, sentencing actually going up and longer punitive sentencing. So this is kind of the trade-off, right? So even when we think about in the last year of Obama, uh, he really made uh, mass incarceration or, or tackling the idea of mass incarceration kind of a priority. And, you know, he is one of the highest, if not the highest, of commuting uh, federal uh, uh, persons and in, in, in people in federal prison. Um, but you remember, it was a very specific group of people, right? Nonviolent drug offenders who were, you know, uh, not connected to any kind of violence, gangs, other, you know, potentially previous um, offenses. And, you know, that's, you know, unfortunately, that's hard to find, right? I mean, if you're in the drug business, right, if you're in the drug trade, um, there's other factors that go into that. That's other criminal uh, elements, there's crime, there, I mean, there's violence, there, there's all of these different things. So, you know, Obama was finding the unicorns and people were rallying around these kind of unicorns. And we can uh, say, you know, that mother who got caught up because she was trying to feed her children and she sold crack cocaine and she's now done 15 years of her life in a prison, that is an abomination of justice, right? And a lot of people can get behind that narrative. What we're less likely to get behind is the narrative of people who have committed violent crimes, people who have committed crimes that we see as either taboo or, 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 or majorly deviant, such as uh, child molestation, rape, uh, uh, assault, right, murder. Uh, we haven't tackled how, how do we bring those folks back into the fold if we really want to have a, a justice system that is restorative rather than punitive. So let's let's turn to this reentry of prisoners into American society. So, I mean, what actually currently happens when a prisoner is released from prison? Um, so, to, before I answer that directly, let me just say, really, prior to the early two thousands, there academic research really wasn't focusing on reentry. It was focusing. Uh, and, and, you know, relevantly so on mass incarceration, this kind of throwing people, massive amounts of people into the U.S. prison system. And then in uh, the year 2000, uh, Jeremy Travis wrote this uh, really great article, which manifested into a book called But They All Come Back. And what he points out or what he highlights is that roughly 95% of all people who go into American prisons or jails come out of those places, right? So we really need to start tackling this issue of what are the resources, what are the, the, the advising, what are the other kind of uh, networks that we as an American society are going to put together to uh, make this coming back uh, really work. And uh, so people start to really uh, start to look at reentry 
more fully in the early 2000s. Then in 2010, um, the U.S. prison releases exceeded prison admissions for the first time since the Bureau of Justice Statistics began collecting that data in 1977. So in other words, more people came out of a prison than went in. Um, so this really started making people aware of this idea of reentry because it put a, 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 a sore on this problem that America hadn't dealt with, that you know we really were doing lock them up and throw away the key and forget about them. But what started to happen was through sentencing reforms, through the fact that some people were literally just coming to the end of their mandatory sentence, right? So if you had gotten 20, 30 years in the late 80s, early 90s, by 2010, you've served your 20 years, now you're coming out. So not only do we have people who've served all this time, but we also have an aging population that's coming out of prison that I think um, a lot of people don't think about, right? That there are people coming out of prison who've been there 20, 30 years and are now 50, 60 years old. So you know, not only do they need resources and other kind of help that, you know, uh, the, uh, the average person needs, but they also need some uh, other things that elderly folks need. So, you know, when this, this, you know, this aging group of people re-enters society, you know, do, do people get jobs? Do they go back to school? Do, you know, like, what, is, what does life actually look like? <sighs> it's hard. It's hard, um, and so I've done. I've done uh, the majority of my research is around prisoner reentry. So I spent three years working at a community-based reentry organization in Newark, New Jersey, where uh, men and women uh, would leave prison. Um, at the time, the majority of those who, who of folks who I worked with or met with were living in uh, a halfway house, and I can speak a little bit more about a halfway house in a moment and what those places are and what they do and how they function, um, and coming to this center for help and for assistance. Um, and in the answer, the it's a complicated answer. There's no simple answer because what we see in the United States is we have literally 50 different prison systems because prisons are state-run facilities and we have a federal system and even within the federal system there's then the military thing so there's all of these different uh, bureaucratic uh, apparatuses that are operating that uh, dictate what you can and cannot have and then even furthermore there's individual prisons that some are better and some are worse so, for instance, in New York State, Otisville um, Corrections Facility has um, programs galore, right? There's programs, uh, everything from a, a prison puppy program to uh, uh, literally students can get college credits through CUNY, through the Prison to College Pipeline program, um, and everything in, in between. And so that, if you are incarcerated at that facility, you might actually have more uh, social capital, cultural capital upon release. If you're in a prison that doesn't provide these things, um, then it might be that much harder. Um, so yeah, the, the short answer is that it depends where you're incarcerated. Um, it depends on your social networks of family, friends, and other networks of folks that might be able to assist you in terms of uh, you know, putting money on your commissary so that you can, you know, don't have to worry about uh, 
you know, the day-to-day kind of, do I have a toothbrush, do I have toilet paper? Um, and also, can folks also hold your stuff? Because I think that's something that, um, that my research also touches upon is that um, a lot of research that's out there about reentry focuses on this idea of success, right? And what is successful reentry? And while people talk about success, it's, it's really a nuanced word in, sen- in the sense that um, it's, it's, really, it's really an individualized word, right? So um, uh, for the state, you know, one might argue that success for the state is that you don't come back, right? Um, for uh, a, a for-profit prison, success might be that you do come back. Um, for an individual, and something that I found that I, I thought was really interesting was um, I ran a group while I was working at this at this facility, and um, I'd always start the group with a, what I thought was like a, a corny kind of icebreaker every week, and people would have to say their name, and they'd have to say um, one positive thing that's happened in their week. And um, a, a lot of guys would say something like, I'm alive, or I woke up this morning. And, and um, in the beginning, I always thought that was kind of a dismissive answer, just my own not understanding reentry as as well as I did, and then as I got to know these guys, to say that I woke up or I'm I'm alive today, that was a really profound and powerful thing for these guys, right? You know, coming out of a really hostile, violent environment, and to be able to to wake up, put your clothes on, come to this place, not be harassed by the police, not you know have anything go wrong, that really meant something for them, and um and and that was success, right? Every day was a success, right? Um, so, so there's a lot, there's a lot going on with reentry, and uh, I think one of the things that a lot of people forget, and as I as I started to mention earlier, is um, what kind of social network, family, friends you have. Because when you go to jail, your your apartment doesn't wait for you, time doesn't wait for you, um, the things that you own don't say, okay, when you get out, we'll be here waiting. So, for many uh, guys, men and women. Uh, the loss of not just um, the abstracts such as social relationships with family, friends, but also the the actual tangible things that we need. So your license, your social security card, your birth certificate, your clothing, um, all of those things can be lost. So for anyone who wants to get a job, right? I mean, you know, the the, the two in the in the kind of literature of reentry, two of the most uh, fundamental things that that uh, scholars say that uh, folks need to re-enter into society is that they need number one, stable housing, and number two, employment, right? Stable employment. Um, well, I would say I agree with that. But if you don't have an ID, right, or a birth certificate, or a passport, or any kind of validating information outside of your state-issued prison number, um, it is very hard to secure housing. It's very hard to secure employment. So there's there's very immediate steps that are needed before we can even get to the conversation of, well, how do you now stay out, right? It's, you know, really, how do we begin? How do we begin? How do, how do prisoners get ID cards? How do they get their birth certificates, which have been lost? Like, how does that actually happen? Bureaucratic tape. I mean, you have to go down to, you know, uh, you know city records. You have to potentially know. I, I knew, um, I remember one young lady, um, had informed me that she was having a lot of trouble getting her birth certificate, but she didn't know what hospital she was born in. Um, and, 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 you know, 
no one knew, right? I mean, it was just this very uh, confusing time. So, you know, proving her own existence, right? I mean, really her own form of, only, only form of identification was her rap sheet, right? Was her, was her prison jacket. Um, so that was a very frustrating thing. And, you know, and this was a young lady who wanted to go on um, to get her GED. She wanted to roll in, in, in college, you know, and it just makes those tasks uh, that much more uh, difficult to, to obtain. And so the, uh, the state doesn't actually help ex-prisoners go through that process of obtaining the necessary. I mean, it seems so basic for so, like you said, for so many additional things you would have to go and do. Uh, so the state, no. But depending on where you live, uh, there might be or might not be more assistance. So, for instance, in the city of Newark, the city of Newark actually has its own uh, reentry division within City Hall. Um, so a lot of folks can go down there uh, to City Hall, you know, tell them what they may or may not need, and then City Hall is supposed to then refer them to the different places. So like there's what's called One Stop, right, where people can go to try to access these materials. Um, there's places like where I worked at um, that City Hall will refer people to. And there's other kind of nonprofits and other uh organizations such as like dress for success soup kitchens etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know it it it's also it, it's deeper than that because it's you know we're also dealing with a population that has uh for many of them has physical traumas mental traumas they might have emotional um uh disturbance issues right so we're not talking about a population that uh is you know you know ready and able to just do everything for themselves, especially since our prison system is designed that they cannot do anything for themselves, right? So, you know, the reorientation becomes much more difficult. And that doesn't necessarily mean I'm taking agency away from people, but, like, just think about the practicality that if you went to prison in, say, 1995, and you are not getting out till 2015, just think about the technological advances that have shifted. You know, so I remember... Uh, one guy telling me uh, he literally had a freak out on the bus and that's because he was getting on the bus assuming that he was going to drop some coins like a token into it and this was a swipe card and he didn't know it the the bus driver obviously didn't know his story and the bus driver doesn't have time to explain this there's people behind him so he said he literally had to get off the bus and wait and then figure it out so we're talking about you know you know taking you know literally plucking people out of society and then just literally dropping them back in and say do do it and and that becomes a really really hard thing um and not only just do it but now you have to do it even better because you're on either parole probation some other form of criminal supervision um which now can limit a whole host of things um which i can get into if, if you'd like you know some of the limitations that folks have yeah, I mean, I one of the ideas that you wrote about is, and I think you wrote about this in your PhD thesis, is on what you called neo-civic death. And I'd like to talk a little bit about what you mean by that term, because I, I, I found it very fascinating. Mm. Yeah, so civil death um, is a term that's 
it's really old, dates back to Rome and Egypt, uh, Greece and things like that. And it basically was uh, to be an outlaw, to be outside of the law. So if you committed a certain type of crime, um, literally you would be considered no longer part of the Republic. And therefore, your civil uh, um, citizenry um, was no longer existent, which then meant that your physical existence could be in jeopardy, because that would mean that someone could kill you with impunity, right? Um, so I've updated the term a bit, because the term is really interesting, so coming out of Rome, Greece, it then found its way into kind of medieval times, and then to English common law, and then obviously the United States, uh, you know, with its English ancestry, you know, civil death had kind of made its way, at least in kind of legal, uh, you know, uh, citations and things like that. But I update it because I think that it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's more nuanced today, um, in the sense that, obviously, people aren't, uh, well, uh, citizens aren't able to kill other citizens with impunity. If we went into law enforcement and how they use their kind of things, that might be a different thing. But um, I, I kind of, I situate the term in this idea that American uh, uh, persons who've been incarcerated, um, they really fall into what I consider this kind of limbo state and what I identify as having almost a purgatory citizenry, which is this neo-civil death. Because on one hand, you're, you're still an in-group, right? The, the country cannot kick you out. I mean, that's why some people um, have asked me, why don't I look at um, um, undocumented persons in terms of my research on reentry? Uh, and, and the main reason is, is, is that if you're an undocumented person, you're most likely going to be deported, right? You're going to be deported back to your own country, and that comes with a whole set of issues and, and problems, and I know folks who've written on that and, and continue to write on that idea of what deportation looks like. Um, but it doesn't necessarily fall into the realm of um, re-entry and how I'm looking at it. But on the other hand, you're an outgroup because you are not given the same kind of civic and civil responsibilities as persons without a felony. So this could mean anything from loss of um, legal rights, um, political rights such as voting, serving on juries, potentially holding public office, uh, economic rights such as holding certain employment, social rights in terms of housing, right? If, if you live in New York City and you have a felony, um, you cannot live in any of New York City public housing. Now, does that mean that in all of New York City public housing there's no one who's ever been to jail living in that? Of course there are. So what that means is people are living in a kind of a heightened sense of fear that if the police ever come and do a stop and frisk, arrest them or whatever, they could be in violation of their parole, probation, or whatever uh, form of criminal justice supervision that they're under. Um, you know, one of the things that I find to be the most fascinating and uh, interesting forms of neo-civil death is that for many folks who have been incarcerated one of their stipulations for parole and or if they're on probation is that they cannot associate with other known felons. Well, there's a lot of discretion in that. So, for instance, you can be standing on a street corner waiting for the light to change and another person can be also be standing there waiting for the light to change. The police want to stop and frisk you, um, ask for your ID, ask for the other person's ID, and you come back that you're on parole and they come back as on probation, the police officer has it within their right to say, uh, these two individuals were fraternizing and therefore you're in uh, violation of your parole because you were associating with other known felons. Now, 
Um, they might take you down to the local precinct jail. They might book you, run your stuff. They might call your parole officer. And, of course, as we know, uh, in most cases, your parole officer isn't going to drop everything that they're doing to come down and assess the situation. So you might be sitting in that uh, precinct jail for an hour, eight hours, whatever the case might be. And even if it is all worked out that they don't charge you with anything and the parole officer comes down and says no, uh, if you were on your way with your job application for a job and that other person was on their way to pick up their daughter from daycare, that's gone now. Those hours are gone. So, you know, you, it's, and it's very hard to explain to a potential job, hey, I got rearrested because, you know what I mean, of my background. So when we think about this idea of, uh, of how known felons uh, and this idea of what is a known felon, um, you know, places in New York City like Brownsville, uh, sections of Brooklyn, right? Um, overwhelmingly young African-American men are on parole, probation, or some other form of supervision. So, you know, basically what this does is it limits one's mobility, right? It takes away one's First Amendment rights, uh, free um, access to assembly. And I've had, I've talked to uh, guys who have told me that they'd love to go to a Black Lives Matters rally or something like that. But if the police start to get to arresting and, and they get arrested and someone else in that crowd gets arrested, that could be considered fraternizing with other known felons. And so what we're seeing is how the state kind of manipulates one's ability to be a citizen. So where is the, I mean, at what level is the activism taking place that is trying to change this incredible system of reentry. I mean, I think this idea of where you just get plucked out of society and then just popped back in is, is a pretty good metaphor of thinking how this is actually happening and how it creates so many perverse scenarios, as you've been describing. So where is the movement for change here? Like, is it happening in these local communities or in, at the state level or, or is it at the federal level? Like, where, where do you see change happening um, or where, where do you think change should happen? Uh, well, it's got to happen at all levels. It's got to happen at the federal, state, local, grassroots. Um, in terms of what individuals are doing, um, I see it as two different camps. One camp is very much on reform and one is on abolition, right? So the reform is really looking at how do we create legislation that makes the prison experience less damaging? And then there's the other camp that says, no, this system does not work. We need to completely get rid of it and think about something in a much more egalitarian, restorative, and uh, uh, 21st century way, right? I mean, one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that in the scheme of human history, uh, prisons are actually very, very new, at least in the way that we think about them, right? Um, that prison became the punishment. Um, you know, prior to really the late 17, early 1800s, um, the, the dungeon was only a holding place till they, you know, drawed and quartered you or cut off your head or something. Um, so when prisons were really developed in the way that we think of them now, they were actually seen as really progressive, right? That this idea that... Um, Penitentiary, the root word penance, that one would go in to a prison, reflect, um, think about what they did wrong, pray to Jesus, Jesus would absolve them of their sins, and they'd come out and be better individuals. Well, we know that over time, putting human beings into very small confined areas doesn't do anything for their both mental and physical health. 
Um, so there are organizations that are out there. Um, one that I can think of is it's uh, it's 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 hashtag Cut Fifty, and this is operated by uh, Van Jones, who's um, he's on I think CNN, and he's written a book called Green Collar Economy. Really sharp guy, um, and you know part of his initiative, which he's also partnered with people like. Newt Gingrich, right, you know, the former Republican Speaker of the House who was part of the mass incarceration era of legislation, but their uh, goal is to cut the U.S. prison system in half within 10 years, right, so cut 50, cut 50 percent. Um, there are other local organizations that I, I, I know of that are uh, incarcerated, Nation, I believe it's called. I'm forgetting the exact name, but you know, really um, advocates to um, get rid of solitary confinement, right? So you know, solitary confinement is used at the discretion of the jail or the prison. Um, human rights. Uh, the UN has said that any more than 14 days of uh, solitary confinement is uh, inhumane, cruel, and unusual punishment. We have an Eighth Amendment that addresses that. Um, uh, neurologists and other uh, folks who uh, study the brain have shown that after 14, 15 days of solitary confinement, the brain literally uh, starts to deteriorate. Not just that people are seeing apparitions and hearing voices, but literally the brain starts to physically deteriorate. So, you know, you have places like Rikers Island here in New York City that can hold someone in uh, solitary confinement for up to 90 days, right? Um, and then the kicker here is that on that 91st day, they can take you out and then put you right back in because it's a new clock. So when we start to see uh, people like Khalif Browder, who was the African-American young man who was held at Rikers for a little over three years and the majority of that time was held in solitary confinement, um, you know, this is how they this is how they operate. So do you do you fall into the reform camp or the abolition camp? Uh, I fall into the abolition camp. I'm a prison abolitionist. I believe wholeheartedly that the U.S., or that prisons in general, but uh, U.S. prison in particular, has not done what they claim it's supposed to do. I mean, we still have very high recidivism rates. Um, around 67% of people who are incarcerated are rearrested within three years. Um, many times those arrests are on technical violations. I had a, uh, not a young man, but I, I knew a, a gentleman who was in federal, in a federal halfway house who was coming consistently to my uh, group that I was uh, running, and he disappeared for about three months. And when he came back, I said to him, I said, where did you go? He said, well, I was sent back to federal prison because I had a cigarette. And so I questioned, what did that mean? And he had said, well, in the federal halfway houses, tobacco is uh, not allowed. And he had, he was a smoker, he was, uh, had some cigarettes, and he had left a cigarette in his front pocket. When, they, when he came back and they gave him a pat down, they found the one cigarette, and like he told me, I told the CO he could have the cigarette. I don't care about it. But the the, the guy decided to uh, use this as an opportunity, and he spent three months in a medium security federal prison in Pennsylvania for one, you know, marble, red, or menthol, or whatever it was. Um, so this is what, what folks are dealing with. So, um, and in... 
not just from the moral and the kind of ethical reasons of why prisons are really terrible, violent places that don't do anything, but when we start to look at it from just a purely economic sense, they, they are money gougers, right? They are huge uh, black holes of state budgets that could go into education, that could go into roads, that can go into houses, medicine, technology, and other infrastructures that could clearly and uh, definitely help build up communities. Um, because we know that incarceration isn't a um, a, bo- a broad spe- spectrum of Americans, right? It is a very specific group. I believe um, Hagen uh, wrote an article and, and had shown that in New York State uh, prisons, over 70% of prisoners in New York State prisons came from seven neighborhoods in New York City, right? So... We're not incarcerating individuals, we're incarcerating entire communities, right? We're not incarcerating one person, we're incarcerating an entire family. You know, as they talk about intergenerational wealth, intergenerational poverty, we're now starting to see intergenerational incarceration, where fathers, sons, grandfathers, uncles, cousins, they're all incarcerated. Um, So we need to kind of break that, that, uh, that up. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention was uh, folks like Jay-Z have, have really stepped up in terms of um, co- trying to combat uh, mass incarceration. And one thing that Jay-Z has also um, brought up is that the bail system in the United States is really a, uh, a poor man's uh, nemesis. Right, because you can, if you cannot afford bail, you sit in a jail awaiting trial, and that's something that a lot of people don't realize. Most of pe- most people in American jails, because there is a distinction between jail and prison. Um, prisons are typically state-run, and they're usually for folks who have been convicted and typically convicted for more than one year. Jails are typically county or city-run, and they're typically uh, for pending trial or for people who've been convicted for something that gives them less than one year of a jail or of a sentence. So when we look at places like Rikers Island, the majority of people who are at Rikers Island are people who are uh, pending trial. They could not afford uh, bail. Uh, So this whole idea about bail reform, and and, and for some folks, we're not even talking about millions of dollars. In the case of Khalif Browder, his bail was set at $3,000, and his family couldn't afford that. So, you know, we're talking about uh, abject poverty meeting uh, the criminal justice system. And, um, you know, this is something that definitely needs to not only be reformed, but needs to be replaced. Well, Calvin John Smiley, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It was a pleasure to talk. I appreciate you having me, Will, and uh, I hope we can do it again in the future. Calvin John Smiley is an assistant professor at Hunter College, City University of New York. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.